Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Zuber. I'm thrilled to introduce today Dr. Robin Chapdelaine, um, Assistant Professor of African History at Duquesne University. We'll be discussing her book, The Persistence of Slavery, an Economic History of Child Trafficking in Nigeria, published in 2021 with University of Massachusetts Press. Dr. Chapdelaine, thank you so much and welcome. So maybe to begin, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what brought you to the study of uh, African history. Thank you so much, Thomas, for inviting me to discuss my book. I'm excited to be here with you. So I grew up in the Bay Area. I attended Santa Clara University, and there was a professor named Dr. David Skinner there who taught African history. And once I took one of his classes, I continued to take as many as I could. Um, And he was the one who encouraged me to attend graduate school um, and focus on African history as my main um, region of study. So really, I was influenced by a mentor to study African history, uh, and I'm so glad that I did. And once I was there, I was taking a couple of different types of African history courses. um, And it was within one of those courses that introduced me to my particular topic. And um, at that moment, I decided to explore my current topic of the book, which is child trafficking. Wonderful. Thank you. So maybe let's now turn to the book. Um, You give us this really uh, fascinating uh, and engaging history of uh, child trafficking from the 19th century to the 1930s. And the framework that you're using, uh, as you say in the book, is the social economy of a child, which you define as a focus on a child's economic positionality in society. Um, And in a sense, your book is very much anchored in thinking about the uh, antecedents of the Women's War uh, of 1929. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about the questions that were underlying uh, 
uh, your analysis and what you were grappling with with this framework of uh, the um, social economy of a child? Sure. There were two sets of um, ideologies I was working with. One was about personhood. Who was a child? Who was a slave? Who could become enslaved? What did it, what it meant to be a mother? What it meant um, to be without a child? Um, those types of issues around how society functions and the meanings around individual um, people and how they define themselves or how society defines them. The other part is largely to do with how economies are understood at the local, the national, and the global level, and how children functioned within those economies. So what I argue and what I I attempt to show is that you can't tell a local, a national, or a global history without incorporating the history of children. Um, Thus, incorporating the idea that children are, are essential um, to, to nearly any history that, that could or should be told. Thank you very much. And I think um, maybe before we delve into the different chapters of the books, you use some very important terms that you think about in kind of intersecting. You talk about child trafficking, you talk about pawnship, you talk about panyaring. Um, could you help us understand maybe how you think about these intersecting um, throughout your, the analysis of your book? Sure. Thank you for the question. A general term such as human trafficking or trafficking is very specific, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the movement of a, a body. It could be within national borders, over national borders, generally by force or it could be the keeping of someone under threat um, or violence or something like that. And we see this clearly within the context of the research in the book. Um, with regards to pawning, this, as, as this occurred during the colonial period, it was a little bit different than the pre-colonial um, trajectory of, of pawning. So it would be that a family could pawn a child willingly to a local big man, um, an individual of means, it could be a woman as well, uh, a legitimate legitimate money lender who might be a trader or somebody else in the community. And they would hold the child for, it could be months, it could be up to 10 years. The child's labor would serve um, as a payment on the interest of the debt until the child could be redeemed through full payment of the debt. Um, This was all done in agreement with one another. Often, the way by which these agreements were arranged, it was a very serious and sacred ceremony, or at least if there wasn't a full ceremony that um, that occurred, it would be something that was agreed to in private, but still with the seriousness of a, of a cer- ceremony. Um, but the expectation always was is that if the parent could, the parent would redeem the child. Um, in the colonial period, the way that I describe pawning as 
changing or the institution in transformation, um, we see that the same agreement was made in terms of the labor of the pawn would pay the interest of the debt. But we see that these arrangements start to break down. Um, and penyaring is quite a different way of dealing with debt. Um, if an individual failed to pay their debt, the money lender or agents of the money lender could go into the homestead or the compound. They could still livestock, a wife, a daughter, a child, an uncle, any one of the family members, basically to harass the indebted or the debtor um, to, to, to force them to pay up or force her to pay up. Um, and so it was kind of a shock uh, type of action so that money could be repaid. Um, so in any one of these instances, they are distinctly different institutions or acts, um, but because they are so closely related or potentially the porosity between them, one could slip from one to the other, from a child pawn to um, someone who has been penyard or even to a slave very, very quickly. And I think that the distinctions I make in the book are very, very important um, because social position means everything. If you're a slave, you have so few rights. If you're a pawn, you're supposed to have many more social rights. And to conflate all of the, these types of positionalities would fail to give the reader a full understanding of the social dynamics, the economic dynamics dynamics of the region. Yeah, thank you very much. And I think that does help us a lot, um, especially as we're going to discuss the different parts of your book. I think it just sets really these clear um, definitions of, of positionality and social status uh, that you discuss. Um, I was wondering, I know in uh, your preface, you notably discuss uh, how the women's war in part became this sort of topic uh, of interest for you and that slowly you shifted um, your um, analysis. Or um, um, And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, we'll, we'll get back to it, of course, uh, when discussing the later chapters, but maybe you could give us a little bit of a, a discussion of um, the Women's War of 1929 um, as this beginning of, uh, of your research. Sure. So I read Judith Van Allen's mm -hmm. article, Sitting on a Man. And as I was reading it, I um, thought it was really interesting that so many individuals still are writing about the women's war. But not only that, they're, they're still challenging each other's ideas. There's anthropologists, there's dance historians, there's political scientists. Um, and, and Judith Van Allen was uh, uh, is a political scientist. And I just wanted to know why there is and continues to be so much research and attention to this particular moment in Nigerian history. So I decided to go ahead and read the testimony mm -hmm. of which the, the Inquiry Commission, the 1929-1930 um, inquiry testimony, of which there are hundreds and hundreds of pages and I realized as I read that there, there might be something more about the war that one could contribute. Um, 
And so that's how I initially became interested in child trafficking in particular. Um, And in doing the research, I actually spent um, a weekend with Judith up in northern New York because I wanted to know what brought her to make the arguments that she made. Um, And it was really interesting because a lot of what she said mirrored my kind of uh, journey through the testimony as well. But she only had secondary materials to look at in the basement of Berkeley, um, which was fascinating, right? And here I I was at the beginning of my research on the same event, but I was lucky enough to have this inquiry. So it just pushed me to dig a little bit deeper. Um, You know, admittedly, all of what she argues, I think, is absolutely relevant. And that's what I love about the book is that it can both appreciate all that's been written about the the war before, um, but it does dive a little bit more deeply into the importance of children's lives. Um, So that's where I initially started with the particular topic of trafficking. And uh, I think that is uh, helps us to make a perfect segue to the question of methodology because one of I mean, uh, the um, fascinating parts of the book is this uh, linking up and this uh, working between different archival records, written archival records, and um, quite a lot of oral history. And I was wondering how you thought about uh, this juxtaposition of, of these different sources. So many of the colonial documents were extremely helpful. Dates, numbers, individuals at play, policies um, in place. Of course, there's a matter of interpretation, prejudice, racism, um, and perhaps more importantly, there's an issue about what administrators and officials were reading were writing for the public sphere versus what they were writing privately to each other or to other friends or family members. So there was always this concern um, when I'm writing and using colonial sources, do I truly understand what the intent was, what their goals were, um, how they're describing Nigerians in in an African court arena? Are the translations exactly the intent of, of the deliverer? Um, in terms of how they were written down or recorded. So there's always a push to what historians like to call read between the lines um, to truly understand what was happening. And I think that is where Nigerian um, newspapers were helpful. So we hear Nigerians reflecting upon what is happening in the moment. Um, That is also where the oral histories come into play, which, you know, also have um, or can be problematic because there are memory issues, there are stories that are handed down from generation to generation. But considering that we have limited sources to begin with, we have to collect, right? It was essential for me to collect all that I could and uh, as a way to create this larger picture um, of Nigeria in the 20s and 30s. So between the colonial documents and the oral histories, the um, anthropological accounts were really helpful too to understand the life ways, the cultural importance of some of these exchanges, economic or otherwise, on the ground. Um, and so it's it's like putting a 
puzzle together, but with, you know, plastic and cloth and clay. It's not all the same, but you still can create a, a fascinating picture, if you will. So maybe let's uh, jump into the articulations of the book and the different uh, chapters uh, that you give us. And in your first chapter, you describe this transformation in the political economy of Biaf- or the Bayer Biafra in the 19th century. As the transatlantic slave trade is waning, there's new forms of wealth transition towards the legitimate trade in quotation marks, um, which still often relies on different forms of unfreedom and different forms of uh, enslavement. And you notably analyze the canoe house system, uh, which, and I'll quote you, um, is this corporate trading uh, and political institution that uh, on page 34, you say, depended on the existence of credits to secure slaves and oil for trade. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about those transformations in the 19th century and how that affected shifts in thinking about the social position of children uh, at that time? Sure. So Robin Law coined the term legitimate commerce um, as this moment where the global economy was moving away from one that is based on chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade to one where um, domestic spheres, meaning national, local, in this case, Nigerian um, economies were more readily dependent on local domestic labor for many of their cash cropping and um, plantation systems to raise money in order to replace the revenue lost from the diminishing transatlantic slave trade. So it's within this economy that we see an increase of domestic slaves, um, especially, it, you know, of interest to me is that of children, which um, Benjamin Lawrence and Marie Rodet and so many other people have identified in terms of, you know, West Africa and other places being a place where this new form of child slavery um, in terms of numbers um, becomes um, a historical moment to recognize. It's um, quite profound. And so as we look at this transition in the economy, we think about, or the questions that we begin to ask is, well, what types of people are becoming enslaved? What types of children, because not all children are becoming enslaved, not everybody is victim to enslavement. And that's when you think about the economic viability um, or, you know, those who are indigent, those who need additional social support, they become part of the factor or they become part of this growing labor population um, that is either coerced or forced or recruited under, you know, nefarious um, terms. Many of these individuals who are without economic support um, could be and were brought into the canoe house system. And it's interesting because we can consider these canoe houses in particular as places of repressive um, forms of labor, you know, the inability to access freedom is obviously not a space where anybody wants to be. But the flip side of that, it was also a safety net for much of the local societies. Um, we have to take into consideration that many of these areas 
because of the struggle over resources, people were left without families, without um, people that could help them survive in some of these, you know, areas riddled with strife. So that and the prevailing economic conditions would not only push individuals to submit themselves to the canoe houses to become indentured workers, free workers, or perhaps, um, or I should say, and it would also encourage others who maybe they had captured someone or they had some form of dependent who would be useful in delivering the individual to the canoe house, either as a slave or a pawn. So of importance to my project, I was looking at the children that ended up in these houses. Um, and parents, just like any other pawning system, parents would deliver children who they couldn't support um, with the aim or hope, I believe, for the most part, to, to redeem them. But the canoe houses made it so difficult for them to redeem once they were delivered. Um, but initially, it was a safe haven in part. It was an alternative. It was a choice when parents had very few choices. Um, and as I've said in other places, you know, often these types of parents who suffered from economic insolvency, they had to choose between a very few um, number of very bad choices. Um, and there, there, there's an, another distinction. You know, we, we're using the word slave as if there's one category of slave. I actually don't like the word slave, even though it's part of the title of my book, Slavery. Um, these kinds of slaves in the canoe houses were quite entrepreneurial. They earned, they, they had the potential of earning a lot of money. They had the potential of gaining their own slaves, um, having quite a bit of monetary resources if they were good traders. The only thing that was problematic is that if they wanted to become free, truly free of the canoe house, they had to leave everything there. Um, and I, I'm more so talking about adult adult traders. Um, so it, this, it was this complex system which incorporated social hierarchy, free and unfree systems of labor, every age group. Um, as I noted in my book, even the elderly indigent would go there just to have a home and for food to eat, right? Um, so it was this very odd space that I don't know is repli replicated yeah. a lot throughout history, Um but uh, it is one that was definitely worth investigating because it provided so much more of an understanding um, and, and forced me to rethink how I understood slave systems in this capacity. I think from this presentation and kind of lay of the land that you do of um, the late 19th century, you then um, provide us an analysis of how Lugardian reforms of the 19-teens, such as changes in core systems and especially the increases in British silver coin monetization, really constricted families' financial resources and often forced people to pawn certain children or at least forced people into these very difficult choices, as you uh, 
as you uh, discussed. Um, tell us about that moment uh, and that juncture between this, inc- uh, this increase in British silver coins, these debt cases that happened in the early 20th century. Taking into consideration that the British had been dis- developing school systems there, they were educating Nigerians who eventually, during this period, slowly but surely, increasingly, ma- increasingly made up um, the employees for the British colonial system. And they began to, the, the main issue is that they began to pay these Nigerian employees in these new British currencies. Um, the problem is that where would they spend British currency? The local markets were not generally exchanging British currencies. Traders wanted to work in Manila's, to trade in Manila's or other indigenous currencies. So getting paid in the British pound, the you know British coins, um, required an extra step for Nigerians. So what happened is that... Um, there are money lenders who were traders or traders who functioned at money as money lenders. They often would receive the British um, currency for Manila's, but every time an exchange was had, Manila value would increase, but the payment to the Nigerian worker would decrease essentially. So they earned less and less over time. Um, And traders could use the British currencies because if they were purchasing items to trade, it could be directly from uh, the British themselves. Um, So this for the average individual was very, very uh, problematic. Um, We should take into consideration that at this time, we know that um, the debt cases that I mentioned in my book between 1915 and 1921 indicate that even when someone was threatened with prison, they would prefer to go to prison than pay the fine or the debt itself because they just didn't have the money, yeah. right? Um, so it wasn't a matter of, oh, people just didn't want to pay their debts because things were a little tight, but rather it was a life choice um, or, or rather a, a not a choice at all, if anything. And so we, we take into consideration the influx of British currency, um, the rising economic insolvent, insolvency among average Nigerians, in addition to the general decline in trade in the post-World War I moment, which means that income in the region um, is, is having an impact, uh, the decline of income in the region is having a general impact, as well as um, the inability for individuals to find money from other family members that they trusted, which was a possibility or seemed to be more of a possibility in prevailing in previous decades. Um, And so this is, you know, an issue that Nigerians had to deal with, as well as the court system that housed a lot of untrustworthy, you know, court 
um, judges and court clerks and, and those kinds of individuals truly and fully taking care, uh, taking advantage of the system um, whereby they can exact money out of the, the local residents if they needed, um, if they needed or wanted to. So economically, Nigerians were suffering, suffering from quite a bit of um, direct and indirect um, harm, really. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the next part of your book, you then shift very uh, slightly in scale, and you're notably looking at uh, the League of Nations commissions on slavery uh, and the work of different um, British uh, activists like uh, Eleanor Rathbone, and uh, around sort of these debates about marriage versus slavery in colonial contexts. And I was wondering um, what these commission records then um, help us, how they help us to understand this history of pawning and more broadly the history of trafficking in the 1920s. So the 1920s was an interesting decade in terms of internationalism and this development of um, awareness of other people around the globe and concern about human rights issues. And I believe that Rathbone and other people like her is a manifestation of this expansion of concern. Um, And it wasn't just in Nigeria. It was in a lot of various colonies throughout the the global south, you know, India and other places in Asia as well, Latin America. Um, They were coming off of um, or out of the late 19th century where there was a lot of attention to trafficking of European women and prostitution and moral concerns about sex and prostitution, et cetera. So thinking about all of that in this context is really important because there, uh, albeit, you know, uh, paternalistic, there were some concerns because there were raising um, issues. There was more knowledge available about children and labor and concerns about slavery, domestic slavery um, all around. And so by the time the commission came to be um, in the aftermath of the Women's War and the hearings, what's interesting is that the record tells us clearly that women were acutely aware of how the colonial apparatus 
impacted their personal economics, but also their economic strategies moving forward. They knew that um, they had to communicate clearly to the courts that it was more than just the rising import prices and the declining export prices. They had to explain how their gendered economies work. You know, they, they, the British couldn't understand. First of all, they didn't believe that the women had organized this uprising themselves. They absolutely believed that a man had to have been behind it. So that goes to tell you at the beginning that they just didn't, they couldn't conceive of how clever these women were, right? They were smart. Um, they were often money makers. They were often the ones that were managing um, things at home in terms of fiscal responsibilities. Um, it's important to note that women had their own saving societies. They would save in groups so that when any one woman or her family needed funds, they would borrow from eventually pay back and the next woman in need could borrow it. It could be for weddings, deaths, tax payments, whatever the case may be. But the most important thing to note is that men had already been taxed and had been taxed and women and men, I should note, had separate, um, they kept their money uh, management um, separate. But when men needed money to pay taxes, they could lean on their wives and their women would help pay um, for the husbands and the sons. So during the testimony, all of these details are coming forward. And of course, during one part of the testimony, they kept pushing this one particular woman harder and harder about well, what do you mean you have a saving society? And how does it work? How exactly does it function? Um, as if they wouldn't have the wherewithal to save money or to trust one another or to understand the way by which a communal savings um, could operate. Um, so again, the commission reveals, it provides a space for all of this to be revealed. Um, what I think is really, really, really important um, and, and perhaps more directly to your question, is that the personal debt crisis had risen to the extent that um, the likelihood of child redemption had become so difficult. It had dramatically decreased um, when nefarious actors were at play. And the women made sure to document this through their testimony, that the interest on the debt was rising, that people were no longer holding their children in pawn, that they were selling them. Some people were coming in the middle of the night to steal them so that that individual could eventually sell the child and keep the money on their own, that their children became central to the failing economy as a way by which for somebody, anybody, to achieve more um, uh, increased fiscal um, strength or, or whatever the word might be. So if you think about that in the context of what it means to be a woman in Nigeria, you're really looking at the inability of women to remain mothers, which means a decrease in status. Yeah. And I believe that is at the heart of what we understand through the testimony and the commission. So I think from this analysis of these testimonies, then you really provide us with this 
um, original rereading of the 1929 Women's War. And so you go beyond just the analysis of the colonial project of taxation towards analyzing um, people's financial situations, different questions of status within the family. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, how did the socioeconomic states around child status and child pawning fit within the demands of the women's war? You've talked about it a little bit, but um, what were these particulars that were being uh, claimed during that moment of the, of the women's war? Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. When you read any given account of the women's war, it always starts out with this school teacher, Mark, who goes knocking, you know, so to speak, knocking on this woman's door and says, I want to enumerate your fowls and your, you know, livestock or whatever the case is. And um, she really flips out, to put it simply. And she says, how dare you come into the homestead and ask to count, um, et cetera. And I... Through, through this testimony, but also through interviewing various Nigerians, I ask, what is, what is the problem with asking how many children do you have? In addition to the livestock, I said, how, what is the problem? And they explain, when you count someone's children, you're testing the fate of the children's lives. You're, you're testing the gods, right? You don't want... Um, anything ill to, to befall your children and counting is one way to do it, right? It's kind of um, saying, being boastful, you know, this is what I have and I'm proud of it, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to be humble about everything that you have. Um, so I understood that spark in that moment much better that it wasn't just about, oh my goodness, there is a chance because they're counting, they counted the men and they tax men. Now, if they're counting my fowls and my chicken, they're going to put a tax on that as well. That was the assumption. It made me understand, yes, it's about money, but it's also about the fate of their children and having prolonged access or the lack of to those children. Um, and I think that's really the beginning of the women's war that should be more, um, that should, should receive a little bit more attention. Um as it relates to to the women and, and motherhood. Once this uprising began, I think that it's fascinating how the women understood their position in society and what was owed to them in terms of respect, right? So you have dancing, um, you know, as Judith Van Allen argues, this kind of dance, this performance, this um, movement, um, and not so much in a, a positive, happy way, but as a way to shame men for their misbehavior. Um, that unveils a, an, a region or an area of these gendered relationships where it is not enough to say women are in some way subjected to men's authority, therefore men should or could act any way that they wanted, but rather it's more of a democratic give and take between women and men each have certain types of responsibilities. And through this negotiation of the relationships, um, each should be respected in particular ways, especially if you're an elder woman, uh, elder woman. Um, 
And these women were acting on those cultural norms um, and the violation of those cultural norms. So this movement from town to town, this fierce response, um, not just to the question that was asked by Mark, the teacher, but all of the abuses they had suffered for the last decade or so, all of it came to the fore. They were not scared to go out to the streets. They were not scared to, you know, burn down buildings or block roads. You know, so, you know, one, I mean, as you know, I shouldn't say one, there are many reports that show the number of women um, that were injured or killed in this fight for recognition and for, um, for expressing their frustration, not just with the British, but with the local Nigerian men who were in areas of leadership, including the court representatives, money lenders, and others. Um, so I think that that's what's really interesting about the women's war is you look at all the, the ways in which they were expressing their frustration. Um, and it wasn't that they believed that um, an anti-colonial movement was necessary. Often they went to the British colonial administrators for assistance with the local Nigerian men who were giving them problems that were um, really sucking them dry in terms of financial resources. So of course it's, it's much more complicated than the bad guy and the good guy, but the women's war represents this textured story where at every level they felt like they had to fight to redeem um, some of their privileges, perhaps their, their economic resources um, in respect and society. I think from this analysis of just this textured, uh, really uh, textured analysis of uh, uh, the different claims and the different stakes of the women's war, I think you then go to drastic change that happens then in the late 1920s, early 1930s, which is the effects of the Great Depression on family economic reality. And very often men lost wage labor opportunities and there were was another moment of families being forced to pawn or traffic children, notably to pay taxes. or um, And um, so there seems to be this very important shift that happens just after the women's war uh, that's both maybe in part linked to the war itself, but also to other structural uh, transformations uh, linked to the Great Depression. Tell us a little bit more maybe about those um, changes um, and you notably mention and you notably signal that there's also a shift in what colonial uh, administrators are focusing on. They seem to be now focusing more on questions of child, what they're calling child slavery. And so what are those transformations that are happening um, in the 30s? Right. Um, so the Great Depression really did, just as, you know, the earlier depression in the 20s um, had an impact on many Nigerian societies because the palm oil trade is so prevalent um, throughout the region. So it was almost unavoidable um, in terms of having many, many people, much of the population feel um, the ripple effects. So individuals were 
we're trying to figure out how do they have access to income, um, legit, you know, viable income, right? And so people are acting in, in a lot of different kinds of ways to increase their ability um, to earn money. But then there was also, unfortunately, this increased movement of children. So people's livelihood became um, less so trying to take money lending schemes and turn them into uh, trafficking schemes, but just an increase of outright stealing children is one way that they they tried to deal with their um, decreased earnings. But also you have um, the movement of children to palm oil farms further away from the children's home. So while you may have lent out your child before to work on someone's farm, um, you have traffickers or child stealers moving the children further and further away from their local communities. Um, and the British colonial office clearly understood that much of the colonial economy was buttressed by these indigenous lending systems, first of all, which we saw in the, the 1920s and even more so in the 1930s, um, as well as forced and coarse labor systems. And dismantling those systems would destabilize Britain's economy itself. Um, one thing that Moses Ochono shows is that Britain may not have intended just to gut Nigeria's economy, but rather use it as a way to build up and sustain Britain's economy after the war. So they imagined it as, I think he notes it as some quote unquote, an interrelated or interconnected dependency of um, the economies. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily how it played out on the ground. Um, but to, like I said, dismantle these unfree labor systems would mean to destabilize Britain's economy itself. And that's really important to note. Um, the way that they got around dealing with some of these systems um, or eliminating them completely is just to say that they were harmless or that the um, patterns of um, these systems would just die out, which we see that it didn't necessarily happen as they said it would. So many officials didn't want to stop these systems. Um, by the 30s, they kind of threw up their hands and said it's too expensive to keep researching, to keep um, investigating. Ponship in particular at first, um, they just said, maybe we should just focus on how to deal with repatriated slaves or freed slaves and deal with increasing their livelihoods or, or improving their livelihoods and well-being, um, mainly children because they were most at risk. And it's for me, it's not a surprising turn of events. It's not surprising that officials said, oh, I know that these you know, Women's League um, of the United Nations, they're going to be so upset, but there's not much more we can do. And, you know, that we can't really contend with the operations of these. There, I think, I believe one thing that I um, argue is that the complex system of um, trading these children doesn't incorporate one major um, organization or something like that. And so th there was not, not one particular group that they could attack and break down the system anyhow. Um, 
And yeah, we know that they're not going to be happy, but we just have to move forward with what we can do. Um, I, I think that they found these women groups very frustrating because they were holding them to account. Um, and whether we see the aim or the goal of these women as legitimate or not, it is true, and, and I, I certainly appreciate it as a historian, that them pushing the administrators there in Nigeria to investigate these forms of uh, child trafficking produces all of this information. Now, we can see in some of the questionnaires that go out to each of the regions, do you have child slaves? Do you have child pawns? Do you have child marriage? Some local administrators evade the questions, they deny it, they minimize it, but there is still a lot of information that comes forth. Um, I just wanted to say that as an aside, and I find it fascinating. We definitely find that in this post-depression moment, that the way of surviving, the way of um, dealing with challenging economic times continues to be through children. And that's what I'm arguing in the book is that, again, you cannot tell the history of the Great Depression. You can't tell the history of Nigeria's um, decline in the palm oil trade. You can't tell the history of the global economy at large, which was largely based on the access to palm oil leading up to this moment without saying or asking, hey, what were children doing? How did they function as vehicles through which wealth is transferred? And I think that that's, that's an essence, essential um, fact and transformation to take into account. And I was, um, and very helpful, I think, uh, synthesis of a lot of what you're um uh, dealing with in the in the book, I was wondering also um, one of the moves that you make is also to talk about how much this period that you're studying, the 19th century through the 1930s, is also a crucial moment to think about questions of children and their positionality and links to the economy in our present moment, and in question, uh, and so I was wondering how you thought about uh, about this link between this uh, layered, in-depth historical analysis and um, the contemporary. Sure. One link I like to make um, is this development of social sciences that's focused on children from the 1940s onwards. Because what we see happening in Nigeria, initially in the West in Lagos and surrounding regions, and then eventually in Calabar during the later 40s and 1950s, um, is this explosion of training institutions, educational facilities, but also remand and rehabilitation homes. Um, you, you, you almost see what one might call the, the pathologizing of the child which in itself is an entire economy, um, economic, you know, institution. Um, but there are a lot of different types of uh, social sciences that, that are developed um, or, or increasingly become focused on children, whether it's psychology, um, education, psychotherapy, different forms of social rehabilitation. And so 
What I find interesting is how these initial institutions, not just in Nigeria, but globally developed in the, at the exact same time, right? Um, I think some of these, some of this focus begins truly in the 20s, but really explodes by the 1940s and 50s. So that's one strain that you can make a link to. Um, the other link that is important and perhaps obvious to the, the listeners is this heightened focus on child trafficking and the claim that you know almost any form of child, child labor is harmful. Um, and there are many, many forms of child labor that are harmful. But just as I teach in my classes, I ask students to consider the choices that family ha- families have, right? Um, if you live in a rural area and there's only, you know, you have a family who's, let's say the father has died, maybe the mother is elderly or is disabled in some way, and you only have the two children to bring an income, what are the choices there, right? It's perhaps they don't have a welfare system the way that we do in, in the States. The children have to work. So I asked them to remove some parts of their perhaps moral or morality frame and think about, well, is it bad if it's the only option to survive? Um, And it sounds a bit simplistic, but that's one way to start. Um, It um, de-sensationalizes the issue of child labor in that way, which child labor isn't child child trafficking inherently. We do have to keep those two separate because they do become conflated at times. Nevertheless, in general, um, in the general public arena, there seems to be a continued inflation or conflation of these issues. And so I think that people are curious. They are automatically concerned when they hear about child trafficking. They want to understand what compels people um, to engage children in this way or to, you know, implicate children in modern day slavery schemes. Um, And I always suggest in my conversations when I'm discussing this in class or, you know, in other spaces, well, what do we, what do do we mean exactly? Let's look at the context. Let's look at the details. Um, The other component to this has to do with the connections that we make directly with the past and the present. Are there, is there some link between prior forms of child slavery or trafficking that can link directly to a contemporary moment? Um, I suggest that there are legacies, there are certain kinds of lineages, there are, in particular for my book, even spaces that remain the same in terms of the transfer of children from the 1920s and 30s till today. But I don't believe we can simply say this is the direct line. It's a rearticulation of a similar type of slavery. And I say that because social conditions change, cultural conditions change, and economic conditions change. Just as pawnship changed from the pre-colonial period into the colonial period, so too does certain forms of unfreedom. Um, and if I can 
re-employ my critique about the word slave or slavery in the canoe houses, there too we can see, oh, but that's just a different way of understanding um, labor, coarse labor, housing the indigent, etc. Um, I think that local particularities are so important when making that kind of judgment. Thank you very much. And really, thank you so much for this, giving us your time to learn more about your book, which is just such an important book on, on these questions and really historicizing uh, questions of uh, child trafficking in Nigeria. To conclude, maybe can you tell us a bit about the projects that you're currently working on? And, uh, what's next? Sure, absolutely. Um, right now I'm working on my second book project, project. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has gotten in the way of two different trips to Nigeria to do oral interviews, but um, it's tentatively entitled Transnational Migration, Sex and Trade in Fernando Po, 1940s to 60s. Uh, that Bioko, um, current day Bioko, is what Fernando Po was, a former Spanish colony. And my project examines how Spanish authorities opened up spaces for southeastern Nigerian women to successfully migrate to Fernando Po by recognizing the colonial administration's desire to have women be with husbands. Um, other scholars, scholars have noted these trends as a way for colonial authorities to administer social control over the men. Um, and I'm analyzing the use of marriage certificates and other documents, uh, many of them falsified, that women used to travel. So many of them weren't actually married. Some of them were just traders or prostitutes or both. Um, and the kind of struggle the Catholic colonial administration had to deal with by having them there in the face of British labor authorities allowing these women to work um, through legitimate day or night passes, if you will. Um, and I, I've written a little bit already about it um, and have had that published, but I think that a full project is necessary now. So I look forward to completing that. Um, and then I'm also writing a human trafficking textbook for Rutledge um, that should be available to undergraduates in the next couple of years. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it was really a pleasure to discuss this book with you. And uh, just to recap, this was the conversation with Dr. Robin Chapdelaine, uh, The Persistence of Slavery, an Economic History of Child Trafficking in Nigeria, which was published uh, with University of Massachusetts Press in 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Thomas. I appreciated the conversation.